welcome to Bringing Design Closer. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm the founder of the Human Centred Design Network and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, home to many of the world's best design and changemaker courses online. Now today in the show we have Emma Blomkamp, a facilitator, researcher and strategic designer based in Melbourne and leader within the co-design space. In this episode, we speak about Emma's past and how they got into co-design and design generally, but we speak about the evolution of design and where co-design sits within that and what it looks like now and potentially in the future. It's a great one. Let's jump straight in. Emma Blancamp, very warm welcome to bringing design closer and I'm delighted to have you here with me today. Emma, you are someone that I've been following on the Twitter sphere for, for quite a while and of course, in true Australian nature, we sat down and we spoke and we realized we know a bunch of people um, together. But before we jump into all of this, maybe um, tell our listeners where you are now and what lands you're on. And also um, how you describe yourself, say, when you go out for a drink with people that don't know who you are and what you do. Thanks, Jerry. It's lovely to be here with you. So... I am uh, currently in Brunswick or Bulikabek. It's the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, but I hail from Northland in New Zealand, Aotearoa, where I um, was very fortunate to, to grow up and get educated and work for a little bit. Um, so I really struggle to describe what I do at a party. I um, think recently have just been saying either something like, oh, I facilitate groups or I train or if I want to get like specific and just test whether people have any idea what I'm talking about, I'll say I train people in a methodology called co-design and then just try and read how blank their face is or not. Um, I find it's a really tricky thing to describe, especially because I keep transitioning my practice. Whereas, you know, I I think I'd started to get used to describing what I did when I was the facilitator. Um, but now I'm kind of training and coaching and mentoring people in that practice. And it's one further step removed, uh, making it even harder for me to talk about what on earth it is that I do. Okay, so go all the way back because I know you're a doctor, uh, Dr. Emma Blomkamp. What's the doctorate? Cultural policy. So Ooh. not something that's super useful on a plane, um, but I did uh, nerd out for a few years about mm-hmm. arts and cultural programming at the local government level uh, and how and whether you can actually evaluate nebulous goals like promoting cultural vitality and community well-being. Mm. So you think it's not helpful on a plane, but, you know, it could be good. <laughs> you could be a good person to sit beside. You got, I'm sure you got lots to discuss in that topic. But um, where did you study um, your your PhD? So I actually did a joint PhD, which was kind of unusual and especially um, unusual for my lead mm. university, Auckland, which hadn't done that before. I was... Um, fully enrolled at the same time at the University of Auckland and the University of Melbourne. Um, And it was really great to be able to get the benefits of two different universities. um, It's amazing. Yeah. um, And especially I was 
interested in doing research that covered both countries. So it was great having a base in both places, Mm. Um, but a little bit complicated trying to, um, you know, get to institutions working together. So the joke is that actually, as a result, I have two PhDs. Um, because the universities didn't communicate, I got two different certificates at different times. So you can really? call me Dr. So doctor, doctor, doctor if you like. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a but song. Em- Emma is doctor. also fine. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Doctor, you're like, that's that's even cooler. Um, so you've, you've been, you, you finished your PhD, was it in the mid 2010s, was it? Yeah, probably about 2014. I think those certificates, uh, came out. Okay. Right. So a couple of years ago now, and since then you've, uh, been involved in, in lots of kind of areas that, that I was involved in back in Australia, back in the day, maybe talk to us a little bit more around, um, from 2014 onwards, um, I know you worked primarily in um, in government and public services and social innovation and, and places like that. Um, how did you find it when you came out of uh, with your PhD? How did you know? Oh, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm interested in the journey, basically, from your PhD and how all of a sudden now you're working in co-design. How did that start? Yeah. And what's what's the background <laughs> there? Wasn't a a clear and linear path. I can tell you that. <laughs> sure. I, uh, like many PhD students, had, you know, a a total crisis the week after I submitted, wondering what on earth I was going to do with the rest of my life after achieving that huge goal. I assumed I was going to, I was living in Auckland, New Zealand at the time with my partner who was doing his PhD. Mm -hmm. um, And I assumed we would both go off and do postdocs overseas. But in the meantime, he was based in New Zealand. We'd already done a long distance relationship while I was back and forth to Melbourne. And I thought, I just need to stay in Auckland right now. And there certainly weren't any cultural policy academic jobs in Auckland at that time. Mm. Um, The discipline doesn't even really exist in New Zealand. So I knew I was going to have to go overseas to, to follow that career. But in the meantime, I had to find a job. So... I I had a friend who actually sent me an advertisement for a um, job in a social innovation agency. So I Googled social innovation, applied for the job, Googled it again just before the interview to talk about it um, and got the job. And I was the first full-time employee at Innovate Change, um, which has since merged with the innovation unit. And suddenly learned all about human-centered design, co-design, social Mm. innovation, um, and really fell in love um, with this kind of work. So I was super fortunate to be um, working with Simon Harger Ford, who was my boss at the time, Mm. Penny Hagen, who worked with us at Times. Um, Later, Kellyanne McKercher joined us, Carolina Davis as well. Um, So I had some really incredible colleagues, mentors, co-conspirators there, um, as well as our sister agency, Curative. Um, So it was a really uh, exciting place to be. And I learned on the job, basically. It sounds like you had a cracking team there as well. Like it was, you're going to learn through doing definitely by working alongside KA and Penny Egan and um, I know recognize some of the other names there as well, but they're the ones that jumped out. Um, mm. So what did it look like, you know, on the journey? Because I'm trying to think way back to 2014, what the, the industry looked like in Australia at that time. In 2014, it was predominantly 
there's a lot of UXy kind of talk and user experience type conferences and even design research conferences had probably been just been started to be talked about a little bit more. Service design was there, but it wasn't really prevalent in government. Um, hadn't really kind of surfaced in conversations as much as it should have been. Maybe 2016, it started to happen a bit more. How did you um, how did you get over that kind of leap of the exclusivity that sometimes can be surrounded by those industries like UX and you know you had done research before I think that's what you mentioned before so how did you deliver value into the team at that stage or what did that look like and how did Mm. you get on? Well I was completely new to the design world but I I had a had a mix of skills from my academic research but previous work as well um, especially developing education programs for film festivals and and working as a language teacher. So I had um, done some stuff around program design without really realizing what it was um, and had some facilitation skills. So even though I actually first joined the team as a project coordinator, Mm. um, quickly started taking on more and more work um, and leading projects. We were a really small team, um, especially when I joined. So it was great to be able to just look you know watch what others were doing Mm. pick things up learn by doing um I think we were really lucky in New Zealand at the time thanks to to Penny Hagen and others who were um convening things like the design for social innovation symposium so there was this little small field um that I kind of connected with Mm. I wasn't as connected with the rest of um, the design world for sure. And it probably wasn't until I came over to Melbourne um, initially to work for the University of Melbourne um, at the Policy Lab, which was a new research unit there at the time, um, where I started doing research on co-design at that point. Um, And then through that work and later joining um, Paper Giant, a strategic design consultancy, I I connected a lot more with the service design community here and was just blown away actually by kind of the size and strength of that community in Melbourne. Absolutely. There's, there's a good nucleus in in Melbourne, uh, in service design in particular. There's a lot of, a lot of great people down there. What I'm interested in is how you discovered co-design as a thing and how it entered your life. And was there a specific project where you kind of went, actually co-design here would have given us something that I would have had without it. Um, so what can you tell us what that looked like? Yeah, I think it was it would have been some of the um, community level social marketing projects actually that really? we worked on at Innovate Change. And they were basically behavior change campaigns, but done in such a different way to what I would have expected and have since realized <laughs> to what is done elsewhere. But where mm. we worked really closely, so I guess a, a project example is probably useful here. And one is yeah. um, a project that um, is called Behind the Wheel. And we we did it in partnership with our sister agency that was a is a creative agency. Um, and so it was really great because we were able to um, innovate, change, lead, led the design phase, and mm-hmm. then they led the delivery. But we did both in partnership. So we were actually co-designing the whole way through. Um, and, you know, the, the first step of it was us getting a brief from a gu- couple of government organizations saying, this is a problem. 
Um, you know, we want you to go and work with this community to solve it. Um, we want you to produce a um, campaign that's going to stop young people driving without a license because we're seeing, you know, yeah. it is a big road safety issue in a particular community. Um, and they had all kinds of facts and figures and assumptions about what was going on there. But we started by saying, well, let's actually check these yeah. assumptions and find out what's really going on in this community. Is it even happening to the extent they think? Why is it happening? Mm. Um, you know, what what are the barriers uh, to, to young people driving without a license? What would um, enable them, motivate them to ch change their behavior? So one of the first things we did was actually recruit community researchers to go out and research young people and, and their families. And um, sure enough, that research turned some assumptions on their head um, for instance, you know, we'd been told this was about young risk takers, mm -hmm. um, but we found that the young people in that community who were actually driving to a huge degree without uh, a, a license. license or without a full license were generally good kids who went to school, went to church, didn't do the typical teenage risk-taking behaviors, right. but just had so many barriers to getting a license and it had become such a norm to drive without one that that's just what they did. So that reframing of the problem really on, early on with the community um, was really helpful for us to then, you know, move on with the community to design things that worked with them, um, community events and, and those kinds of things that actually got people excited about getting a license. Yeah. When, in regards to that project there was uh, the co-design kind of mindset used all the way through to delivery or was it just really around the framing of the project? Yeah, the interesting thing about that project was it was used all through delivery. So oh, we had right. this model at Innovate Change and, and K.A. Uh, McKercher talks about in the, it in their book, Beyond Sticky mm. Notes, of the kind of three different kinds of people that you want in a co-design group. You yeah. have some community members, you have some professionals, and you have some creative provocateurs. And so we had one of those co-design groups set up in the um, first phase, the kind of design yeah. and research phase of the project. But then when we moved into delivery, we actually um, just formed a group of key community leaders and right. members to be our co-design group throughout so we were constantly testing and iterating um, and developing ideas with them um, rather than just assuming that you know we'd figured it all out in advance and we had enough community input and we needed to stop um, and I think that was a, a huge strength of that project it's it sounds like um it sounds like there was, there was a moment there in your career that you were just kind of like you'd found something and especially when you said that the the service design community as well um was that part of the innovate change piece in uh was that in Auckland I think it was wasn't it the innovate change um was service design around at that time as well it was a bit but I d I didn't know much about it and even so even now I don't know how much was happening in Auckland that I wasn't aware of because I was so new to that community um or how little kind of I, you know, I wasn't aware of service design meetups. I think, you know, definitely human-centered design was something people were yeah. starting to talk about. And design thinking was definitely something Absolutely. people, you know, were starting to talk about. And even, you know, the New Zealand Trade and Enterprise Group were really big at kind of getting mm. design coaches into yeah. 
organizations to try and um, promote like better ex you know get better export income for New Zealand so there was a big movement around design thinking and I think even that model of design coaching um, yeah. has been quite influential um, on my practice assume you know seeing that as a as a legitimate role for the designer with a multidisciplinary team. Absolutely. Well, we're going to come to your your practice now in a minute. We're going to talk a little bit more around that. But I'm kind of interested to to get your thoughts on why co-design right now at this stage. It seems that a lot of a lot of the, the main people that I see as part of the co-design kind of movement, um, they've they've hit kind of momentum at the moment where it just seems to makes sense and a lot of designers who've kind of lived a life and have worked through many projects of course they're going to come back and they're going to go this is perfect we've been talking about this all along and now suddenly it's a thing what i'm nervous about with co-design is that it can be seen almost as if a repackaging of design thinking in some people's eyes as an another another movement i know it's not okay right it's not like i'm, I'm saying that but if there are people out there that are saying like, oh, co-design, it's just another repackaging of it. What do you say to them? I agree that is a real risk and it mm. happens to a certain extent. I hear people throw this word around. Um, you know, they seem to think the, the that co-design, the co-design thing. Yeah. Yeah. Two people got in a room and used some sticky notes. Oh yeah, we co-designed it. Yeah. Um, I brought them into the room and now they're they're they they wrote some of those sticky notes. So so this is this is this must be co-design. Are we doing it? Everyone? Yeah, I think we're doing it. We're we're finally doing the co-design thing. We're, hey, we're yeah. doing co-design, folks. I think that's so, something yeah. that yeah. And it's hard. It's not, you know, there are different understandings of what it means. It's not a clearly defined practice with agreed industry standards. Um, but there are some things that I think are clearly not <laughs> co-design and some things that are, but the difference is whether people are really sharing power or not. Mm. Um, if we're comparing it with other design practices, yeah. if we're comparing it with other kind of community engagement practices, because a lot of people are saying, are calling any kind of consultation co-design, then it usually lacks any designerly practice if it's just consultation. So, Mm. you know, designerly practice and power sharing, I'd say if you've got those, Sure, we might be able to call it co-design, but you yeah. know, there there probably are some other things to consider. But if those two things are lacking, yeah, um, people aren't really doing co-design. So, despite the way the term gets thrown around, one of the things I've noticed, and I've been in this really kind of privileged position to be able to guide people on their journeys, having mm. some academic and professional experience now, um, is that. Lots of people come to me saying, you know, they they want to do genuine co-design. They really want to think critically about how they engage people in meaningful and, you know, sensitive ways. They want to think about power sharing. Yeah. They want to think about generative practices and creating things together. Um, and there are, I think, a lot of people trying hard to to, to do that to do that and to to strengthen this kind of practice and way of working. So when you look at the industries like UX, like we mentioned there in 2014, you know, um, a little dot on the calendar there, Emma finishes PhD and arrives into the UX world. UX, if you look at the trajectory of what's happened in UX over the last, say, eight years, it's kind of had a rebrand and a repositioning and it seems to be struggling with 
product design and digital design and, and so forth. It's kind of lost its mojo in some ways. It's kind of lost its direction. Um, do, do you think that is that all down to the, the lack of intent around, you know, power structures and does, helping work with those? And is that what co-design does? Is that really where its super strength is? It's the identification of the power structures and really working to understand them and to dissolve them, I guess, in some ways. Or disempower them yeah. is probably a better way. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think they're necessarily directly comparable because there'll be times mm. where you've got people working on some kind of, you know, user experience digital journey that is something quite straightforward on a website that doesn't need a massive co-design process yeah. around it. Um, but I think um, as, you know, there's lots of really great work and other people doing work like Alba Villamil and Humanity Centre talking about mm. the need to bring in questions around ethics um, and yeah. impact, in you know, in, into um, this. And I think a lot of the people... Yeah, who do come to me with an interest in co-design. Some of them are UX practitioners, yeah. digital designers who aren't necessarily going to be facilitating an entire co-design process in every part of their work, but are curious about how they can work with people in more creative, sensitive, participatory ways. Hmm. I think that's a really, it's an interesting observation because you're, you're right. Any of the people that I've spoken to who are, who are interested in doing things better. And I see a lot of those coming through This Is Hate City and through This Is Doing as well. Um, they're aware of co-design, but they're really, they're probably in a in a position or a role that lacks the the opportunities for them to really spread their wings and to, to evoke the change. So what, what advice do you give to people who are in those positions and who want to learn more about co-design and help them move the dial forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it is worth acknowledging that it can be frustrating for people who can see the benefit in co-design and are in a design, a role where they could facilitate a design process with a diverse range of people that don't necessarily have the resources or other kinds of conditions that would enable them to do, do that. So I don't think everyone's in a position where they have yeah. the conditions and capabilities for co-design. Um, mm. And I do just want to acknowledge that, you know, is those are constraints for some people. But mm. I think there's still possibilities to work in more co-design-y ways. Um, and that's where I think, you know, taking the mindsets or principles of co-design as a starting point, if you're learning about it, is really useful. And I find this is different to you know, back in 2014, when I was learning about human centered design, it was very process driven and tools oriented. Yeah. Um, and I think that I'm not sure that may work in some contexts when it comes to yeah. co-design, there's definitely not a one size fits all way to do things. You know, you have to adapt the context to the people you're working with, to the problems you're, you're working with and so on. So if you're in a position where you're not able to necessarily lead a full comprehensive co-design process, I think you can still adopt um, the mindsets like seeing people as the experts in their yeah. own lives and making sure that we are 
you know, treating, if we're doing design research, we're treating participants in the most respectful way. We're, Mm. you know, designing our research processes in the most inclusive and accessible ways. Um, Something, for instance, um, Josh Stepinsker and I worked on a design research project um, in in one of the many waves of the pandemic uh, in the blurry times, I think a couple of years ago. Um, And you know, it was a it was a design research project. It wasn't a co-design project. We weren't actually co-creating uh, a particular product program or service mm-hmm. with the group of people we were working with. We were producing a report. But right. in that instance, we thought about how do we do this in a more participatory way? And a simple thing we did was invite the research participants to a debrief while we were in the kind of synthesis you know, we'd done the, the first kind of level of analysis. We were in the synthesis mode. We were starting to develop insights hmm. and we wanted to test them. We wanted to check um, that we were interpreting people's stories and ideas in ways that they agreed with and that resonated with them. Um, and so we, you know, held an optional online debrief for participants to come along to and, and give feedback before we finalized what it was we were saying and that was so helpful. We actually reframed the kind of how we talked about that group as yeah. a result of that session. It's it's something so simple, but bringing people back and having a playback um, within research, of course, it's going to deliver value when you think about it. it's It seems so obvious um, when we talk about it now, but what happens when you do that synthesis and analysis? we're using our bias and we're using our own assumptions and we're kind of like make trying to make sense out of things, that whole kind of making sense. Tell us what it looked like when you brought them back. Was it just, uh, you know, did you hit a home run or was it a case of, um, you know, you got some things wrong? Tell, tell us what that experience was like. Both. I mean, I think I, you know, I would have loved to have had a lot more time for that. And, I, you know, that's something mm. interesting because I, it's not the kind of thing you design into your research plan um, at the beginning to really iterate a lot with your research participants at that point. Um, so I think we had like just an hour lunchtime session, something that was easy for people to drop into online. And we had whew, testing my memory, but maybe we had like six to eight of the 15 participants show up. With a couple of the clients as well. In a group um, format or is it one-on-one? In a group, in a group, in a group format. Group. Yeah. So we did a very, very brief mini presentation and that was really hard, especially at that point in the research where you're so deep in it and you've got so many things to say. But we pulled out a few things. Um, one that kind of represented the really high level things we were we were noticing um, to show what we were, you know, hearing and would be focusing on in the report, but also some things we were a bit unsure about. Um, mm. And there were some things that we, those kinds of things where you think, mm, I'm, we might be able to explain this in this mm. way, but that, you know, is that our bias? Is that our assumption? Are we just interpreting this? So getting some feedback um, from people on those. And the other thing, yeah, the key thing that we also wanted to test was the the research um, had been framed by the funder, as is common in the legal sector, around yeah. this concept of the missing middle, the people who are, you know, too, too poor to afford a lawyer, but too rich to get public legal assistance. Um, mm. And the idea of that made it sound like there's a large group either side of that group. 
But what we worked through with um, our group, we're like, well, how should we describe you? Um, and, you know, we, we kind of threw a few ideas around and they pointed out that most people are in this group. So, you know, we renamed it the missing majority um, ah. to really highlight what a significant group the legal sector is not serving in the way that it's producing resources that aren't currently you know, accessible and understandable enough to people to be able to solve legal problems on their own, which was the focus of that yeah. research. I want to ask a little bit more around the direction of co-design and where you see it going at the moment, because how, how I see service design and co-design coexisting together is, I think co-design is, is so much more better placed to to inform the direction of many industries within the design ecosystems. But I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what does the future look like for co-design um, in general? Well, I think we're at a time where we're so aware of the complex problems we're facing mm. and we're aware of the climate crisis and racial injustice and yeah. so on and so on. I won't spend the whole five minutes talking about listing, all of those complex everything. problems, <laughs> yeah. but we're also aware that they're connected. And if we're doing some work that is about health service design, then we need to actually be taking into account some of, you know, the complex complexity of the system that we're working with and the yeah. health system and the complexity of people's lives um, and the complexity of these social and environmental issues and injustices that are interconnected. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot to take on. And I think having a co-design approach helps us to actually, you know, have a bit of a, a manageable process and practice for addressing some of these really wicked problems yeah. in constructive ways. Hmm. So I think co-design is really useful. I notice that, you know, it is popular at the moment. Um, we in Victoria, in Australia, where I live, recently had a um, Royal Commission into Mental Health, mm -hmm. and about half of the recommendations mentioned co-design um, and, and or co-production as what needs to happen. But That's amazing. A lot of the people who are working in these sectors haven't been trained in co-design um, mm. and are suddenly expected to be co-designing things. So I think there's huge demand right now um, for on-the-job training and coaching in co-design. Uh, where I see... Um, lots of potential too, is not in getting consultants to do the co-design work. I've been there and done that. Um, it, you know, it can be done, um, but we're increasingly seeing people actually wanting to build their own skills um, and knowledge in this and it to be a capability, yeah. you know, that, that lots of <clears throat> different kinds of roles have um, in lots of different kinds of organizations. So I, I'm seeing in particular, I'm shifting more, more and more, um, towards doing co-design coaching and mentoring yeah. and and just um, currently in the in the process of launching a community of practice because I also see the need for support that people you know people might be just trying to do this as part of their job and they might not even have time or yeah. money to to engage in training but they want to connect with other people who are also trying to do co-design and they want access to resources um and sometimes even just a bit of moral support doing this really it's hard huge work. i mean we were talking earlier about the, the short sort of bursts of, of training and you know they can teach people 
a little bit more around the skills and they can take that back. It's like a little snack size piece of knowledge that they can digest and so forth. But in, in order to enable the mindset, which is critical for both service design or co-design or whatever you want to call it, really, we call it co-design in this instance, it takes breath and it takes um, time and energy. And not always do we have those kind of areas of sort of what's the word that I'm trying to, uh, try to talk about, like nurturing, where, where people can actually feel nourished. Um, they don't exist within many organizations. And it's always better to look in the external is what I find, where you can find other people with similar stories to reflect back. So tell us what this looks like, because, you know, from This Is Hate City's perspective, we obviously have a community, but this is something that, folks, I'm I'm a firm believer in what Emma's doing. Emma's a wonderful person, and um, we've connected for, for quite a while on this. But the co-design co-community is, I think that you're, you're, you're playing on the, on the word, the co-design community of practice. Um, how do people get involved? Where do they find it? Uh, what does it look like and what do they get? Do your Thanks, sales Jerry. pitch. That's the sales pitch. <laughs> However, she's just going to go get a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm getting ready to say, but wait, there's more. Yeah, um, you too. Join Bunnings Warehouse now. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't really. I, I set it up So properly. we've just done a very, very soft launch this week with um, the people who participated in my main training program last mm. year. We're, um, we're just testing it out before we go live. So at the moment, you can um, get a little bit of information on my website at emmablomkamp.com slash co-designco. Uh, but we will have uh, be launching the Co-Design Co space um, in the next few weeks. Okay. But you can still find it via my website. And we've got two levels of membership. So one of the things that's a bit interesting and different that we're doing is we are being a little bit exclusive with one of the levels. So there are two tiers of membership. One is accessible to anybody who wants to join. Um, yeah. And that, named after the Australian bird Galar, gives you access to a huge range of resources uh, and newsletter updates and invitations to um, community events. But for those who are actually already practicing co-design, um, we've got a by invitation only membership that is a little bit more involved. So for people who actually really do want to be part of um, bi-monthly events where we will actually, you know, do some sharing and learning and testing and playing together um, or um, get involved in Slack discussions as well as getting access to all those resources and newsletters and things as well. Um, that's the Kia level of membership, named after the New Zealand um, alpine parrot. And what you can see with the names is we are also quite clearly focused on Aotearoa New Zealand and Australia, um, since that is where I'm, I'm connected to um, yeah. communities. But we're going to be online. So we are going to be open to, to others in the world who also are interested in kind of using co-design for promoting equity, regeneration and well-being. Okay. All of this is online, presumably. Those, I'll put a link to the, the Co-Design Co in, in the show notes. But all the events that you spoke about um, and the, the meetups, they're online. They're not in person. At this Correct. stage, everything is entirely online. Okay, yes. that's cool. Look, Emma, you know, you're always welcome back on This Is Eight Today and bringing design closer whenever you want to come back. You know, there's there's so much work that we could have covered off today, but 
we would probably end up having to do about three or four episodes just to cover off some of the, the background on your work. Um, thanks for giving your time and energy today. And I'll throw a link to all of these into the show notes, folks. And if you want to follow uh, Emma also on Twitter, Emma's a fantastic person to follow on Twitter. Like they're sharing lots of important work out there and shining a light on people who, um, you know, really need the, the light to be shown on them. So Emma, look, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Jerry, and thanks for everything you do with This Is HCD and This Is Doing. Not at all. It's it's all worthwhile when I get to speak to people like you and Ka and Joe and everyone down in Australia. So thanks so much. A pleasure. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care. <laughs>